Welcome to Cross Communities Podcast. We're glad you're here to listen today. We would love to connect with you today for listening to our podcast. Please fill out a connect card on our website at c3naz.net. You can also support the ministries of Cross Community by giving online on our website. We hope that today's message will strengthen your faith and help you to love God and people more. sermon text to you this morning to prepare your hearts for Dr. Tim Gaines' message. Uh, The reading comes from Romans 6, 1 through 14, and the NRSV version. What then are we to say? Should we continue in sin in order that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin go on living in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him by baptism into death, so that just as Christ has raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in the newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like this, we will certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be destroyed. And we might no longer, no longer be enslaved to sin. For whoever has died is freed from sin. But if we have died with Christ... We believe that he will, we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin exercise dominion in your mortal bodies to make you obey their passions. No longer present your members to sin as instruments of wickedness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and present your members to God as instruments of righteousness for sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but you are under grace. This is the word of God for the people of God, and our response is, thanks be to God. Hey everyone, Pastor Jeff here, and I'm really wanting us to go ahead and jump right into our sermon today, and I'm excited for you to hear this sermon from Dr. Tim Gaines. Uh, Dr. Tim is a professor of Christian ethics at Trevecca Nazarene University, and he's also an ordained pastor. He serves as the associate pastor at Trevecca Community Church, which is the college campus church right there 
on Trevecca's campus in Nashville. This sermon was delivered back in 2021, but I believe it has something to say to you and to me today. And I really believe it is something that you are going to want to respond to. And so I want you to already begin to prepare your hearts because we will have a time of prayer at the end where the altars will be opened. And if you want to respond to the message that Dr. Tim gives, we want to make sure you have an opportunity to do that. Today, Dr. Tim is going to talk with us about a word that we use in church quite often in our worship, in our singing, in our prayers, and even in our sermons, and that is the word sin. It's something that's tough to hear and tough to talk about, but I believe Tim does an incredible job of talking about this from a biblical perspective in such a way that it is... Uh, you'll be able to grasp onto it, and I believe want to respond to that. So let's jump right in. Dr. Tim Gaines uh, is going to speak to you today, and I just believe God is going to use this powerful sermon in your life today. Let's open our hearts to the message. My name is Tim. I'm a grateful believer in Jesus Christ. It is good to be with you today. And I know we've said it before in here, but I think it bears repeating again, that oftentimes when we come to Scripture with our questions, Scripture responds by saying, well, let me tell you a story. And so today we are coming to Scripture with these kinds of questions. What is sin? That's the question that many of you asked when several weeks ago we asked what you wanted us to talk about in this sermon series. What is sin? And another version of that question that came in to us was, is something sin for one person and not for another? Now, can I just say thanks to you? If you were the ones who submitted those questions, I want to say thanks. Why? Because I'm a theology nerd. And this is catnip to me. I love digging into this stuff to inflate the ball and to kick it around a little bit to figure out the answers to some of these questions. And I need to let you know right now that there is this impulse within me to just dive right in and start making all kinds of distinctions between terms and what constitutes sin and what doesn't constitute sin. And as a matter of fact, where's Steve Sands? I don't know where he is right now. He was here. He's always oh, out there handling probably something that's really important. That's fantastic. That he's doing that. But I came into church this morning. Steve met me right down here and he walks right up to me. And only the way that Steve can, he sticks a finger in my face. He goes, are you finally just going to give us a definition of sin this morning? And I said, Steve, I would love nothing more than to give you a clear definition of sin this morning. But here's the problem with that. I don't know that the story that Scripture wants to tell us is really going to just do that for us. Because I come to Scripture with all of my questions. What is sin? And it says, let me tell you a story. And there are lots of good definitions of sin. Theologians across the ages have given us lots of really clear and precise definitions. Martin Luther said that the sinner is defined as the person who is turned in upon the self. John Wesley said that sin is a willful transgression against a known law of God. There's lots of definitions, but my fear is that none of those definitions are really going to make sense if we extract them from the story that Scripture is trying to tell us about the very nature of sin. You see, when we tell the story, 
We get to know the characters in that story. And from the very beginning of this sermon series, we began to say that if we would have the courage to ask some of these questions and to really pursue the story that is working on us, it might just help us get to know the character of this story a little bit better. The God who loves us and has created us and is redeeming us, we might just get to know that God a little bit better, even if that's different than maybe the story that we've received previously. And so when we come to Scripture with this question, I think it responds to us by saying, well, let me tell you a story. A long time ago, once upon a time, a loving God created this world and designed it in such a way that it was meant for blessing and flourishing. Part of what this meant is that God made all things and blessed them so that that blessing would be poured out upon creation and then it would begin to spread over all of the creation. That everything that God created was supposed to be involved in these deep relationships of blessing with one another so that life could flourish all over this good creation. And so God created these relationships where the human beings, this kind of crowning achievement of God's creation, would be the ones who are blessed with the image of God, to remind the rest of this created order what the Creator was like, how that Creator functioned, that maybe the plants and the animals would be in this relationship of blessing with one another, that the, that the fruit of the trees and the things that the land would produce would bless the animals and the humans. They would have something to eat, and in turn, then the humans would care for these animals and these plants and the earth around it, so that this blessing would just continue to pour out over and over and over again. And in the final achievement of God's creation... These human beings created in the image of God to remind the rest of the creation what this blessing was supposed to look like, how this life was supposed to be poured out, were created and put in this beautiful relationship with one another. This close relationship. As a matter of fact, it was a relationship that was so close that they didn't wear any clothes. Scripture tells us that they were naked and unashamed. (laughs) No one's cheering for that this morning. That's how deep sin goes, friends. Sometimes I wonder about a holiness people. We want to be free from the power of sin, but not that free, if you know what I mean, right? We still like our clothes when we come to church. Amen and amen. But there is this deep sense of relational closeness. This deep sense where there was nothing between the man and the woman. They were intimate with one another. They knew one another in this kind of deep sense of intimacy. This is the way that life abounded. The man and the woman were close to one another. And this whole thing, this utopian nudist colony with a killer buffet, was all for the sake of flourishing. All for the sake of life. All for the sake of this deep sense of relationship that pours out on all parts of creation. And then, for reasons that are still a little bit mysterious to us, one part of this creation said to another part of this creation, do we really have to do this? Do we really have to live like this? I mean, couldn't we do better on our own? What if we came up with a better idea that kind of put us in the middle of all of this stuff? We don't re- God didn't really say this, Right? God really just doesn't want you to kind of rise up and live to your fullest potential and begin to lie to one another about what the fullness of human potential really was. And so as we read this morning, the woman reaches for the fruit and takes and eats and gives some to her husband and the wheels begin to come off. The deep communion of relationship begins 
to be choked off. The pouring out of blessing begins to be squeezed off and life, as it was intended to flourish, begins to disintegrate. That, I think, is not only one of the most tragic parts of the story, but it's also one of the most heartbreaking. Why? Because in the story that we've read this morning from Genesis chapter 3, we get an image of a God who goes to walk in the garden in the cool of the day. And there's nothing about Genesis 3 that would suggest to us that this was out of the ordinary. No one's going, oh my word, God's walking in the garden in the cool of the day. We've never seen this before. It seems like it's one of the most normal things that began to take place. And I think that that begins to signal to us that maybe this is because part of the thing that makes life flourish is God's involvement in the middle of all of it. God didn't just set all these things in motion and then take a break. God was always deeply involved, near to this creation. So that all the life that began to flourish was because God was right there, close, communing with the creation and the human beings. But what God finds that day, what should have been this joyful walk in the beauty of the garden, becomes a nightmarish lament, where God cannot find the beloved human creatures that God had placed in that garden. So God begins to cry out, Where are you? Where are you? I know you're supposed to be here. I can't find you. I think we could probably take all afternoon, if you're a parent, (laughs) to start exchanging stories about not being able to find the beloved creatures that we are supposed to give life to. Amen? You know what I'm talking about? When we had first moved to Nashville several years ago, Shauna got an invitation to a, 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 a baby shower. It was in a part of town that we didn't know very well yet. And so I decided what we would do is drop Shauna off at the baby shower and then I would take our two kids and I would take them over to this event that was happening. It was right before Halloween time. And so it was called like a pumpkin festival. It was at a mall. I'd never been there before. There were thousands of people, but there was lots of fun stuff for kids to do. And so I dropped her off there and I took the kids over and they immediately went for one of the bounce houses. And so I put both kids in the bounce house and I'm watching these little heads go all over the place. And I looked up to see what the band was doing and to listen in to that for just a little while. And then I looked back at the bounce house and now I saw one of the heads that I had come to protect and preserve. And so I looked at Callan and I said, Callan, come out. Get out of the bounce house. And he comes out and I look down at him and I said, buddy, where's your sister? And he goes, I don't know. I'm just having a great time bouncing around. So then I look at the attendant who was supposed to be taking charge of these children. He was probably about 15 years old. And I looked at him and I said, have you seen a little girl in here with blonde hair and wearing a pink dress? And he goes, I don't know, man. There's lots of kids here. And I was like, fair enough, man. They don't pay you enough. And so I start looking around. I get Callan up on my shoulders and I said to him, buddy, we've got to find your sister. You need to start looking for her. You look one way and I'll look the other. And of course, he was really helpful to me because he just jumped up on my shoulders. He starts saying things like, well, daddy, we've lost Sissy forever. (laughs) That's it. Mommy is not going to be happy about this. Like he's lost a pair of shoes or something. And so after about 10 minutes of not being able to find her, thousands of people in a place I didn't know, the panic begins to set in. Where are you? Where are you? I'm supposed to protect you. I'm supposed to give you life. Where are you? 
I made my way over to the bandstand. And friends, this is not something that's really just kind of in my nature. But when you're calling out for the one you love, you do some stuff that's out of your nature. And so I walked straight up to the lead singer of the band and I said, stop, make an announcement right now over the PA. We are missing a little girl. She's got blonde hair and she's got a pink dress on. As soon as he made that announcement out of the woodwork, every little girl with blonde hair and a pink dress started being held up in that crowd. Adults were grabbing kids they didn't even know and holding them up and saying, is this the one you're looking for? And it's like, not that one, not that one, not that one. And five minutes go by and 10 minutes go by and 15 minutes go by. And I don't know what to do. Where are you? Finally, I walk back toward the bounce houses and here comes this kindly stranger holding a little girl by the hand. Is this the one you're looking for? She had just slipped out of one bounce house and decided the other one looked a little bit better. And so she was bouncing in there. I think this might be the little girl. I said, thanks. And I took both of them in my arms like this. And it was probably a quarter mile. Now I'm preaching. So it's probably a half mile to the restaurant where I was going to take them to lunch. And I carried them both under my arms, knowing that I had finally found the ones that I had been searching for. And I sat them down and I gave them ice cream. and I said, don't ever do that again. Don't ever leave me again until it's time to go to kids camp. Then go. It's going to be great. Your mom and I need it. That's the kind of anguish I think that we have to understand here in this question. It's not just, where are you? Where are you? And the broken heartedness of a God who deeply loves this creation begins to resonate through a passage like this. I need to find you. Friends, I know that there's lots of different definitions of sin that many theologians put forward. and We could put these all up on the screen. We could spend our time together today debating their merits, but I don't think we're really going to get any of those definitions or be able to deal with this question of what is sin very well until we've spent some time sitting with this story of getting to know the heart of this God who cries out into the void when the life-giving communion that God hardwired into this creation is cut off and broken. And the man and the wife turn away from one another and they hide themselves in shame. They withdraw from the life-giving presence of the one who made them. And here's what I think is so fascinating about all of this. In all of Genesis chapter 3, the word sin is not used one time. It's not there. It's the story of sin, isn't it? It's the story of what happens when we're cut off from our source of life. But the word sin isn't actually used until we get to the very next chapter in Genesis chapter 4. And that's when God comes to the son of Adam and Eve. His name was Cain. And God, in some sense, kind of wraps an arm around a grandson. It's the way that I like to imagine this story. And says to Cain, be careful. Sin is lurking at the doorstep. Sin is crouching at your door. And it desires to have you. That's the language that's there in Scripture. Sin is crouching at your door and it desires to have you. And I don't know about you, but I can almost imagine this grandfatherly figure saying to his grandson of sorts, it's not the way it was with your parents. See, back when your parents were created, I had them. And life flourished. But now, things have gone wrong. And sin is crouching at the door. It's trying to have you. And I don't want that for you. 
Because you can either be had by me or you can be had by sin. Only one of them is the source of your life. Only one of them is going to cause you to flourish. Only one of them is going to create you in the way that you have been designed to flourish. And so, Cain, be careful. Sin is there. It wants to have you. And that's how things might flourish. Here we are now. And the sin thing is always seeming to lurk around the edges and pulls you away from me. So I think that the God who cries out in the garden, where are you? It's also the God who desperately wants us, our kids, grandkids, to know. It's going to pull you away from me. So friends, I hope this story can help us set these sin questions inside of it. Whatever sin is, it's what's pulling us away from the life-giving communion with the God who's given us life. It's what's cutting us off from the abundant life that God offers to us. Now, I realize that that might be a different kind of a story than most of us have inherited. See, I'm at this point in life where sociologists are telling me um, that I am kind of right in the middle between two generations over here that have come before me and two generations that are kind of following up behind me. Um, I'm the oldest of the millennials, they tell me. As a matter of fact, sociologists have started using a term that I don't know that I'm so wild about, geriatric millennials. I am still working on coming to peace with this, but that's the term that they're at, the oldest of these millennials, which basically signals that I'm kind of right in the middle of this life thing. And there are some generations that came before me that I watched as they inherited a story of sin. And now I'm working with a group of young adults who are coming up and they're wrestling with the story of sin that maybe was given to their grandparents and to their parents. The story of sin that I think I grew up with and I watched my parents and my grandparents grow up with is a story of sin that I think got passed on to us in these subtle ways through things like the evangelistic tool called the Romans Road to Salvation. Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. Others of you have no idea what I'm talking about, which is totally fine. But I found this bookmark, which is on the Internet today, and it's still being passed out at things like mission trips. Basically, it was this whole notion that if you're going to meet someone who isn't a Christian and you want to invite them to be a Christian, you walk them down this road that drops in at certain passages in the book of Romans, and it tells the story of how you can become a Christian, the, the Romans road to salvation. What's interesting to me about the Romans road is that it begins in step one with sin right there. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Now, I want you to hear me on this. I don't disagree with Paul on that. I think sin is such a pervasive issue. It has wrapped its tentacles around all of us. I think God is right in Genesis 4. It's always at the doorstep. It desires to have us. It is wrapping its arms around us and attempting to pull us away from God. But here's where I want to pause just a second on things like the Romans Road. Why does the story begin with sin? I think that's a misstep. Because the story of Scripture doesn't begin with sin. The story of Scripture begins with life giving flourishing and deep communion with God that has given us this gift. So while I do think, yes, sin is a problem and it's affected all of us, I don't know that I would really want to start the story in that place. Does that make any sense to you? But I think there's, and it's not just that if you fall into one age category or the other that you're going to just 
fall in line with this, but generally, I think this is the story of sin that was being told to my parents and my grandparents. The, the story begins with your sinfulness. That's what makes you human. That's what makes you who you are. But friends, I, I think that the story of Scripture wants to tell us something just a little bit different than that. See, sin is not what makes us human. Sin is what is eroding our humanity. Sin is what's working against our humanity and the way that God has created us to be. That's not what makes us human. So that's where I want to hesitate on this. At the very same time, I think that there's this notion that my parents and grandparents probably grew up with that says that's really what the story of sin needs to be. The story of sin is to convince people you're sinners. You've done a bunch of bad stuff, and that's why you need salvation. It's because that's where the story begins. So first, convince them of their sin. Here's where I think we're at an interesting point culturally. I'm living between two generations. I'm living between a generation. And friends, I have heard several of you from that generation say, this is exactly what we need. We need to start talking more about sin to convince people of their sinners that they would come to the hope of salvation. And I understand that all of us are affected by the sin thing. I'm also hearing a lot of young Christians begin to say, man, that seems like a harsh story. I don't want to be called a sinner. I've grown up in a culture that's basically telling me you can be a good person. As a matter of fact, I saw some survey results not too long ago that was surveying Americans that asked them to identify whether or not they were a good person or a bad person. Buckle up for this one. Ninety percent of respondents said that they consider themselves to be a good person. Ninety percent. That's statistically staggering to me. And part of what I think this begins to say is that now we've got this generation who's coming up and saying, "Ooh, don't tell me that I'm a bad person. I'm doing everything I can to be a good person because good person is really marketable right now. That's really the end thing, not being a bad person, but being a good person. So don't just tell me that I've done a bunch of bad stuff. That's the kind of judgmentalism that the church is using to repel people from the message of the gospel. You feel me? I'm caught between these two worlds. But what if both of those stories maybe are in attention because... Maybe it has to do with what we think sin is. Here's what I'm getting at. Maybe sin isn't just doing a bunch of bad stuff. Maybe sin is withdrawing from the very presence of God. Maybe sin isn't just committing a list of errors on the list of all of the sins. Because I think both of those stories tend to operate in those categories. What if sin wasn't just doing a bad thing or wanting a bad thing? What if sin is what's crouching at the door to pull us not only away from God, but also away from one another, to begin to erode the relationships that are the source of our life? What if sin is whatever robs us of being in the image of God, modeling God to the creation around us? Sin, I think, is that mysterious invader that's infiltrated God's good creation, and it's eating away at the deep communion with God and one another that gives us life. Theologian named Mildred Bangs Weinkoop, who taught for many years at Trevecca, wrote a book that I've just come to love over these years. And in that book, she's got this phenomenal quotation that I want to give to you today. She says, holiness consists of this unobstructed personal communion and deep personal fellowship with God. God seeks 
our love, where are you? And gives his love without measure. Sin is simply the absence of this relationship. Because humans have repudiated it. Humans have pushed it away. Humans have turned their back on it. So what does she mean here? I think she means that you and I were not created for sin, but for communion with God that spills out into blessing to the whole creation. Sin is choking off the flow of blessing. It's disconnecting from the source. It's withholding it from others. It's turning in the image of God for the image that we think that we can create better than God has. And so what does this mean for the question? Is something sin for one person, but not another? This is where it gets even more tricky. And in honesty, and with apologies to Steve Sands, I think the answer is, it depends. It depends on what we're talking about here. Overall, I think the question really is something more like this. Is this something that's going to take you further away from communion with God, or closer into it? See, throughout the ages... There are certain things that Christians have said, we just have seen way too many times that doing this fractures communion with God and with one another. It takes us apart. It rips us apart. And we're going to name those things for what they are. We call those things sin. And we've got lists of those things in Scripture. It's things like envy and malice and slander and lust. It perverts the kinds of relationships. It turns us against one another. It mutates the kinds of relationships of love that God has created us to have with one another. And I think it is right and good for us to call those things sin. But there are, I think, other things that may not pull one person away from deep communion with God, but it might for another. And this, friends, is where I'm actually a little bit proud of the Church of the Nazarene's history on this. See, You may be new to the Church of the Nazarene. Trevecca Community Church belongs to this global family called the Church of the Nazarene. And part of what we've done from the very beginnings of our history, if we looked at things that were taking some people apart and degrading their ability to connect with God and to pour out blessing upon the rest of the creation. And we've seen that some of those things aren't necessarily listed in Scripture as a sin, but they're still harmful. And so we've tried to create a community in places like this where those kinds of things aren't going to be the hallmarks of what we do in these kinds of communities. We know that it may not be a problem for one person, but it might be for another. And for the sake of that person, we're willing to put some things away and to say, I love you so much that I'm going to turn away from several things that Scripture doesn't explicitly tell me I'm not supposed to do because I want your creation to flourish. Friends, if only this could be the kind of spirit that we have in places like this. We look around the world and we go, if you're struggling with this, I have no problem giving up some of my stuff so that you can have the opportunity to connect with God in an unobstructed way and be able to receive the blessings of life so you can pour those out so that you can be everything that God has created you to be. This is the church of the Nazarene. And yet, I think sometimes we have struggled Honestly, we have struggled with trying to figure out where that balance is. You know what I'm talking about if you've been hanging around with us. And I think the whole history of the church that I love has been trying to figure out how to balance all these things together. Susanna Wesley, the mother of John Wesley, who is one of our theological forefathers, wrote to her son when he was 22 years old. 
Can you all remember what it's like to be 22 if you pass that mark? You're making some life decisions. I remember what it was like to be 22. I'm trying to figure out what do I do and what do I not do? Like this sin question, is this sin for me or is this not sin for me? I don't know because I'm going to make some decisions at this point in my life. Susanna writes to her son with this extraordinary wisdom and says to him, whatever weakens your reason, impairs the tenderness of your conscience, obscures your sense of God, or takes off your relish of spiritual things. They were British. In short, whatever increases the strength and authority of your body over your mind, that thing is sin to you, however innocent it may be in itself. In other words, it may not be a problem for some people, but it might be for you. And if it takes you away and begins to break apart these relationships, son, that is sin to you. Call it as such. But if you'll notice, Susanna doesn't just trot out this list here. She doesn't write to him and say, the following activities, John, are sin. Avoid them at all costs. And John doesn't just take this list and go, well, I haven't done that, haven't done that, haven't done that. I must be good to go. Suzanne, I think, is tapping into a much richer story. The story of deep communion with God. And I think her desire here is not just that John avoids doing bad things, but is so deeply in love with the God who is the source of his life. That she would say to him, just love God so deeply that you wouldn't want to do all of the other things. And this, my friends, I think is the hope of holiness, the hope of what we see there in Genesis chapter 3, the hope of what we see in Genesis chapter 4, and all the way through the whole story of Scripture. It's not just that we have this list of things that we don't do, and as long as we don't do them, we're okay. It's that the God who loves us is still walking in the garden, calling out to those who have withdrawn themselves from His presence and saying, where are you? Where are you? Don't withdraw yourself from me. And the hope of holiness is that there is a group of people who have heard the call in the garden and have acknowledged, you're right, I've taken myself further and further and further away from you. And it's caused me to reach for the first fig leaves that I can find and to put barriers between me and the other people around me. And I'm tired of doing it because it's not giving me life. And the hope of holiness is a group of people who come out of the bushes and stop hiding and say to the God who loves them, who is crying out for their communion, I'm right here. I'm not going to hide anymore. I'm not going to withdraw from you. I'm not going to stop putting barriers between me and other people. It's just me. And I'm right here. You can find me. Maybe somewhere in this, the hope of holiness is that this God would wrap an arm around us and say, you see, it was always crouching at the door. It was always seeking to take possession of you, but now I've got you. And how is it that God has done this? By quite literally wrapping the arms of the incarnate son around people like you and me. That in the flesh and blood of Jesus Christ, this God is still walking with us to say, I know you have withdrawn yourself. I know there's a part of you that is withdrawn from this life-giving communion with me, and it's killing you. But I'm here to say that I love you, and I welcome you back into this deep sense of communion that will restore your life. This is the hope of holiness. 
And when I think about these things, I can't help but think about Paul. Paul, whose words that we read, Paul, who spent most of his life checking all of the legalistic boxes going, I haven't done that. I haven't done that. I haven't done that. I am not a sinner. Sinner has had no authority over me and yet was so distant from a life-giving communion with the God who actually loves him until one day Paul is walking down the road and the God who walked in the garden found Paul and calls him by name and says, you're so far from me. Where are you? And Paul finally responds and says, here I am. I'm done hiding behind legalism. I'm done hiding behind thinking I'm a good person. I'm done hiding behind all those things. I'm here to be in deep communion with you because I think only a person who's had an experience like that can write things like this. If we've been united with him in a death like his, we'll also be united in a resurrection like his so that we are no longer slaves to sin. Because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. So count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Sin will no longer be your master. Sin will no longer be your master because you're under grace. You've been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. Thanks. Be to God. Sin is crouching, God told us. It's trying to wrap its arms around you. It's going to pull you away from me. But you're no longer a slave to that sin. Because of the goodness of Christ Jesus. So friends, this is why I love some of the things that we do around here on a regular basis. It's like coming to an altar of prayer. It's like coming to a table of communion. When we come to an altar of prayer like this, sometimes I think it is just an act of saying, I'm done hiding in the bushes. I'm done withdrawing from you, God. I acknowledge that you are the source of my life. And I need to be in deep and unobstructed communion with you. But some stuff has come up, and it's ripping me apart. It's causing me to see others with suspicion and to distance myself from them, to not be able to love them as myself. I can't fix this on my own, and I need to be walking in deep communion with you. Friends, there is no shame at coming to an altar like this. There is only victory here. Do you understand what I'm saying? Sometimes I think as a kid I would watch people come and kneel at an altar and go, wonder what they did wrong. That's not the story that's here. We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There's not a single one of us in here that hasn't been afflicted by this disease in one way or another. Now I'm starting to see people who can come and confess to God and say, there is victory that is taking place. The image of God is being restored. Here's a person who is tired of having their life being ripped apart from them. Thanks be to God. And when we come to a table of communion like this week after week, it is the table of, do you hear the word? Communion. The source of our life. Where week after week we celebrate the reality that God has still walked with us in the garden. He's still calling to us, where are you? And we come and we say, here I am. And I'm only in communion with you because of what your son has done for me. So friends, we're going to come now to a time of prayer.
when we have the opportunity to kneel, to come out of the bushes, to take off the fig leaves, to stop hiding, and to say, whatever it is, I'm done with it. Here I am. I want to be in communion with you, to be everything that you have created me to be, to enjoy the freedom from sin. What an incredible sermon. Is there anything in your life right now, in this moment, that is leading you away from the arms of the God who loved you so much and is searching and seeking for you right now? I want you to wrestle with that question. I'm going to ask somebody, whoever's playing piano today, to make their way to the piano and just begin to play something softly. And in a moment, Pastor Kyle is going to come and lead you all in prayer. But I just believe that there are some of you right now that this message is touching something in your heart. And I want to encourage you, today is the day for you to respond. And so just get up right from where you are. That's why we have these altars here at the front of the church. It's just a place to kneel and pray and be alone with God. And so if there is something that is you know is leading you away from God or getting in the way of your relationship with God or others, you can surrender that to him today. You can be found by him today. He is seeking for you and today is your opportunity to be found and so let's go ahead and uh, pastor kyle come and lead us in prayer there will be people who will pray with you if you're nervous but we want you to experience victory today and so just come on down come right around the altars make sure that you don't leave this place still carrying that burden you can be set free today And I hope that will happen in your heart and your life today. Pastor Kyle, come and lead us in prayer today. If you'd like to come and pray, this is simply a place that reminds us that God meets us with his grace where we are. It's not a place of shame. It's a place of celebration as we receive the grace of God that it's for us. It's a little bit different to respond to a video that's a response to a video. But we heard good news this morning. So if this is a place where you'd like to come, we want to invite you to do that. What a powerful message that we heard this morning. We don't always think that a message that's all about sin is so filled with good news. But that's exactly what we heard this morning. I love his line, sin isn't what makes us human. Sin is what is eroding our humanity. And God is on this mission to restore our humanity and give us life. This is good news that we heard this morning, church. It's good news that's worth responding to. And so maybe that is for you this morning. Maybe this is a place for you to come and respond. Maybe you respond in your pew, in your own way. Maybe you respond from your couch if you're watching with us online or later this week as you continue to think about this and wrestle with this. But however this looks for you, if you feel God asking you the question, where are you? Don't miss this opportunity to respond to him. He's not asking, where are you? Because he wants to find you, because he's upset with you and he wants to punish you. He wants to find you because he loves you. 
He wants to restore his relationship with you. He wants to bring healing and life to the parts of, of you that have been disrupted by the brokenness of sin. He wants you to find the freedom that's been talked about this morning. So I'm going to pray for us to close this morning. But if God is speaking to you, if he's calling out your name, if he is saying, where are you? Don't hesitate to come even now as we pray. Let's receive the good news of Jesus, knowing that God is rich in mercy. He's overflowing with grace. And it's in Christ that sin and death have been defeated. Let's pray together this morning. Heavenly Father, I thank you that we do serve a God who comes after us, who calls out, where are you, who seeks us. And this morning I ask that you would remind us how desperately you want to repair the relationships that sin destroys. God, you left your throne to come to us so that we could know you. And your story tells us that you would rather die and be separated from your people. And when you went to the grave, God, you took sin and death and brokenness with you and you left it there when you rose from the dead. And so this morning, we confess that we need you, God. We confess that we've wandered from you. We admit that we are in a place where we need restoration and healing that only you can give. So we confess that sin this morning. Confess that we are people in need of a Savior. And by your grace and your mercy and your goodness, we receive your life. We thank you for it. God, we love you. And we trust you today. And it's in your name I pray these things. Amen. I want to invite you to go. Spend some time thinking about this message. Let it sit with you and celebrate the life that our God gave you. But let me send you out with this blessing today. May the God of peace himself sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept, pl- kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He is faithful, and he is the one who will do it. Go in his peace. We'll see you next Sunday. Thank you for being here. Thank you for joining us online. Have a good Sunday. for tuning in to Cross Communities Podcast. We hope you will join us next week.